Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Okay, so at this time, you know what happens. I always take a moment to formally introduce our guest co-host for the week, and I always do so by reading their bio. Now, um, I do this because I think it's critically important for all of us to know the accolades, the credentials, the experience in which our guest co-hosts show up to the conversation. So I am going to now do the honors of reading Dr. Ella Washington's bio, and I am so excited for you to meet her and hear all of her wonderful insight. Dr. Ella F. Washington is an organizational psychologist and DEI expert with a wealth of experience through her involvement as the founder and CEO of Elevate. Solutions, a professor of practice at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, and the co-host of Gallup Center of Black Voices Cultural Competence Podcast, as well as the author of The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. Dr. Washington continues to deepen her research in pipeline, though thought leadership as a Gallup senior scientist studying race, strengths, and other DEI workplace topics. Dr. Washington's global human capital consulting experience has allowed her to impact clients across a myriad of industries, including financial services, sports and entertainment, oil and gas, higher education and government. Previously, Dr. Washington led the diversity and inclusion function at Gallup as a subject matter expert, where she provided insights to clients on issues of inclusion, culture, strategic diversity and engagement. Her research and client work focuses on women in the workplace, barriers to inclusion for diverse groups, and working with organizations to build inclusive cultures. She has conducted inclusive audits, developed learning workshops, and she also has facilitated strategic planning sessions with executive leadership teams who have goals of intentionally, one of my favorite words, improving diversity and inclusion. These experiences inspired the 2016 founding of her company, Elevate Solutions, an integrated DEI strategy firm. Elevate Solutions, an integrated DEI strategy firm, provides dynamic diversity and inclusion strategy and training for organizations looking to commit to systematic cultural changes and how they recruit, develop, engage, and access performance. Dr. Washington's in-depth experience in this area stems from both her research on racial and gender disparities in corporate leadership positions, as well as her global DEI consulting experience with Fortune 100 government, and nonprofit organizations. She grew up in Durham, North Carolina with a tight-knit family, and that gave Dr. Washington her roots. She proudly attended Spelman College, a historically Black women's institution in Atlanta, which led to her passion for maximizing the success of women and minorities. After earning her PhD in 2014 at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, she moved to Washington, D.C., where she currently resides Dr. Washington is passionate about teaching, and she truly loves the impact that she is able to make on the lives of future business leaders every day as a professor at Georgetown, and her impact is powerful as she received the Excellence in Teaching Award from Georgetown's MBA class of 2021 and is selected as a 2023 Poets and Quants 40 Under 40 MBA professors, and Dr. Washington enjoys being active in her church, giving back to her local community, traveling the world, and staying closely connected to loved ones. And so, if you would, podcast community, help me to welcome our guest co-host, Dr. Ella, my friend, um, by pulling out those emojis, those accolades, um, affirmations, whatever it is, those reactions, but let her know how grateful we are that she is here with us today. I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that I can bring her into full view. I'm going to add you to the spot light friends. I'm so excited that you're here. I love visiting with you recently in your city. And uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Now, Dr. Ella, I'm going to give you a chance to greet this audience in your own way. But before doing that, one of the things that we always ask of our guest co-hosts is to share something with us that we would not know about you from reading your bio, which I just did, or even looking at your LinkedIn profile. So what is it that you can share with our community today? Well, first of all, thank you, Dr. White, for having me. Thank you for the warm welcome. I don't know that I've ever been in a virtual room that felt so warm. So thank you. 
for for welcoming me in such way and thank you to the community i'm i'm already seeing the messages in the chat um and you know virtual connection can be difficult but you have done a great job of establishing this community so thank you for um letting me be a guest in it um let's see something that folks wouldn't know about me uh there's so much i feel like to me social media is just a slither of like who you really are uh but one thing i'm really passionate about is travel and i have been ever since um i graduated college um and not travel in the sense of you know fancy vacations that's nice but it took me a long time to be able to afford anything like that um but in grad school i remember you know using every little bit of money that i had like could scrape up to be able to travel and stay in hostels and to get the cheapest ticket I could. Um, because for me, every time I travel, I, I am humbled by the, the human experience. And it helps me to remember that, you know, many of the problems that I think I have, there's so much greater things happening in the world. And it also humbles me in terms of how much I still have to learn. Like, you know, you never know everything there is to know about life, but about culture, about people, and that the way that we do things here in the United States where I live and have lived my, all my whole life, you know, it's not the only way to see the world. And right. so I've been over been over uh, 40 countries at this point. Um, so working my way towards 50, and <laughs> I've learned something every single stop of the way. That is awesome. That's pretty impressive. 40 countries. And I saw where recently you spent some time in Dubai, right? And so and that was actually through uh, Georgetown, right? Do you want to share maybe a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, so interesting. You know, anytime I, I teach DEI in another country, I'm always very cognizant of the cultural differences. And I, I yeah. try to be, again, in the position of learning, um, because while I know a lot, I don't know everything, right? And so what was so amazing about the students that I had in Dubai, they were executive MBA students uh, with so vastly different diverse experiences, careers, industries, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it's funny, a pivot that I made, I, I said, okay, I'm not going to call this DEI because that could be a U.S. centric thing, right? So I'm going to call this, you know, inclusive leadership, which is yeah. universal, right? Yeah, but what was so fascinating, as soon as I got in the room and we were talking, they wanted to talk about like the nuts and bolts of DEI. They didn't want to just talk about inclusive leadership nice. from a broad perspective. They were excited to share the things that they had been doing in the Dubai government over in recent years, but also like what their organizations were doing and what things they were struggling with. And that was just so refreshing because um, it, it really just showed the, the global imperative of yeah. diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and how even in places where we may be very different in some ways, we all can kind of, you know, rally around this sense of elevating humanity in the workplace, which yes. is part of my work, as well as, you know, the opportunity for everyone to thrive in their workplaces. Mm -hmm. Now, I appreciate the amplification of the contextual nuance that sometimes we have to be keenly aware of when we have the, the broad, you know, inclusive, you know, conversation in other um, global markets. And so, um, and you, you talked about centering humanity, you know, you and I share that as part of um, how we show up to this space and this work. And um, I think that it's, you know, appropriate. I did this last week. And so I want to do it this week as well. Many of us are continuing to hold in mind um, the, the horrific um, tragedies that are taking place, the innocent lives and how um, humanity is being really challenged, you know, for a lot of people and, and families um, as we think about the war. And so I'm really, I'm really curious. We won't spend a whole lot of time here, but I'm really curious, Dr. Ella, because I know that you, you have students. So you have like young adults that, you know, may be a little bit of a different way of, of holding space for a community of people around just addressing what's happening right now in the world. And um, I'm, I, I want you to share with us how you've been holding space for your students, how you've been helping them to navigate the complexity of what's happening and, and what you're seeing from those, those young, impressionable minds. So, you know, my students that I'm specifically thinking about while I teach every level at Georgetown, I'm specifically thinking about my undergrad students because mm -hmm. I can only imagine what it's like to experience the world at 18, 19, 20 in a world that social media runs everything, right? Social yeah. media, the internet, all of that. Like while I had that, you know, in college, it was 
I mean, I won't even tell you all the things that didn't exist, but let me tell you, most of the social media platforms, <laughs> well, social media did not exist when I was there. <laughs> so, and let alone for their identities to be so intricately connected to social media, right? And so, you know, while we are all seeing these horrific images and we're seeing all of these different perspectives from one end to another, I, I'm confused at times, right? I'm still learning. I'm still trying to make sure that I understand what is happening and it's very complicated. And so I held space for them this past Monday in class to say, first mm -hmm. of all, I know it's difficult, right? Yeah. I'm seeing the same images you are. I know it's jarring. First of all, just acknowledging, and that's half the battle, right? Just acknowledging that yeah. something's happening. Um, and then we had a conversation around the importance of, you know, protecting your well-being, even in these moments, and right. how friendship can look very different for different people, and that's okay. I think oftentimes, yeah. um, as you and I have discussed, you know, there's this notion that you have to post on social media about everything, and if you don't post, you don't care, or you're wrong, or right. what and while that is the opinion of some, I wanted to allow my students some alternative perspective, some perspective of, you know, allyship in any of these situations looks like a lot of different things, you know? Um, and so you have to find what is connected to your spirit and what feels right for you um, and what mm -hmm. you're comfortable with. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you, you, there are so many ways to show up as an ally. And then, we went into a, a dialogue around the importance of perspective taking, which is, you know, aligned yeah. with empathy work and right. being have difficult dialogues. And I thought that was an appropriate conversation given what's happening in the world, because again, you can look at any news outlet, any social media platform, you're going to see all different perspectives and how do you navigate that? And how can you hold space for someone's perspective that may be different than your own? Um, and this is not to question the absolutely right to humanity and safety, right. right? But in terms of, you know, politics, in terms of even DEI sometimes, mm -hmm. there are times where we we are not really good at having conversations with people who have differing perspectives. Uh, the dialogue yeah. project out of Duke University um, started in 2020, and they've done studies globally. And what comes up time and time again is that we as humans have really struggled in, in our current society yeah. to have conversations with people with differing views, even though we know we should have them, even though we know that we should lead with respect, we just struggle with that. And so I had them do some exercises um, around active listening, around uh, inquiry for understanding, around having conversations and not just waiting until it's your turn to talk to jump in, you know, really questioning yeah. even why you think some of the things you think, right? Sometimes we think things because we've always been told that thing or the media has told us this thing and we haven't even just taken a step back and said, you know, why do I believe this? And, you know, where does yeah. this come from? And so we did those types of activities. And for me, it was not just about the conflict happening in the Middle East. These are skills I hope that they are actively using in their lives and hopefully in the workplace in the future. That is great. And how fortunate they are to have you to hold space for them in that way, because I do believe that sometimes um, we may take sight off of the importance of the skills of just how do we navigate difficult conversations, right? How do we how do we hold space for others when we really don't know exactly what to say in the moment, but we want to stand in solidarity. And so I love that you brought Brene's Brown practice of perspective taking to the conversation, because yes, that is a part of how she likes to coach people around showing empathy. And I think that right now, that is something that all each of us can really hone our skills around is just showing up in a really empathetic way. Um, yeah, and people's allyship is so different. Um, I, I do hate that um, while social media, there's a lot of positivity to it. There's also a lot of things that I think people are having to navigate carefully, right? But generally speaking, I don't like that social media has become the tell-all be-all for um dictating what one's position is, right? You know, so um, what I'm seeing right now is there's a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism among different individuals who feel like if someone has not uh, made some type of public statement on social media, then either they are unaware, they're like under a rock, right? They haven't been paying attention or they just don't care. And and I find I'm perplexed by that because, um, you know, just leveraging the words that you use, people's allyship looks different. And this is not one of those situations where we easily can just kind of gravitate to the center and, you know, play 
place a stake in the ground to say, this is where I sit and this is where I'm going to remain. And so I appreciate your perspective. I'm definitely um, sharing a lot of those same sentiments right now. Well, I'm okay. when, I, yeah. when I think about it, just one more thing. It's like, you know, I often talk about in my book, I, I started talking about how in the Black Lives Matter um, protest in 2020, um, I didn't go to one protest. Um, yeah. because for me, it was a health concern. Uh, I was still very much in the midst of COVID. There were no vaccines at that time. Yeah. Um, it was a health concern for me and my family. And I felt bad at first because I'm like, how am I with this DEI person? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going down the yeah. street in DC to these protests. But that was the first time I, I really had to internalize the fact that you know, my allyship is is much better used in the writing that I'm doing, in the teaching that mm -hmm. I'm doing. I Absolutely, very much be an ally in that way, um, and that's probably how I can be a best ally by leaning into my strengths. And so, I just offer that perspective because we often think that allyship looks like one particular thing, but it 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 is so many things. No, that's so true. I love that you brought that to the conversation because that is so incredibly true. And what a great example. I think if we can we can find a lot of parallels to how um, many people showed up during the, the George Floyd murder situation to maybe how in which they're also processing what's happening here and, and thinking about how to show up. So you referenced your book. I do want to talk about your book. Um, again, it's entitled, and there's a visual in the background, um, but it's entitled The Necessary Journey, Making Real Progress on Equity and Inclusion. So, and I have have to imagine that the use of the language real progress was very intentional. And so uh, first, I want you just to kind of unpack that for us. You know, there's there's a story behind um, using those words very deliberately as part of your title. So tell us about that and what inspired the book. So, you know, in the DEI world, we have said it's a journey for a long time. That is, I did not make <laughs> yes. that up. That is, that is not new. I've heard that, you know, probably since the first day I even learned what DEI yeah. is all about. Um, but what I was finding, particularly in 2020, is that while a lot of leaders were saying, you know, we're on the journey and, and we're really engaged and we really care about these issues, many people did not even understand what the journey was all about. You know, mm. it's easy to mm. say it's a journey, but it's much harder to codify in your mind, like what actually that journey entails, especially when it comes to DEI. And so what I wanted to do is kind of demystify what diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about. Um, um, and do that through the lens of real lived experiences. So my book is a compilation of nine case studies from real organizations who so graciously allowed me to not only lift up the hood of what was happening in their organizations, but to dig around and poke around and, yep. and really unearth, you know, where they had been on their journey, where they were at that moment in 2022, um, and also where they wanted to go. And so for me, it was all about, again, demystifying what DI is all about. And my goal was that every single person who read the book and who reads the book even today mm -hmm. um, can see themselves at some place on the journey because we are yeah. all on a journey here. Our organizations mm -hmm. are on a journey. We individually, each of us is on a journey. And so for me, the book and, and, and sharing those real life experiences in the, in the format of narrative and stories um, was what I hope that people would connect with. Yeah, and kudos to all of the organizations that were willing for for you to tell their stories. I mean, because to your point, a lot of times the 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 journey is messy, and sometimes we may be reluctant for people to kind of see where we've made some misses, where we have had to go back and reimagine and to pivot and to redo and to apologize. But I think that what is probably um, comforting to a lot of folks is just being able to realize that there within this journey, there are going to be some ebbs and flows, some highs, some lows, some wins and some losses. And so we have to just see it all as, as part of that growth um, process. And so I do, I always appreciate when organizations are willing to kind of share their, their stories. And when I often ask questions about, you know, give me one word that, you know, you would use to describe like, you know, this work of, of equity and inclusion um, necessary comes up. So, you know, the, the title of your book is is so very appropriate. 
We want to talk about what you're seeing, Dr. Ella, um, in terms of the evolution of, of DEI. We know that it is evolving. And, um, you know, we see that even in just the past three or so years, when we think about the pandemic, and then, of course, we think about um, how how visible the, the murder of George Floyd was. Um, and, and even now, what we're dealing with with the war, um, these social issues across the globe are definitely impacting and influencing how in which the DEI conversation is evolving. So can you share a little bit about what you're seeing the evolution um, to be and, and, and where you think that there's opportunities for those of us who really champion this work to be a bit more prepared to do it effectively to where the work and the outcomes can be sustained. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we've all felt this sense of whiplash uh, from where we were yeah. in before 2020 and then in 2020 and then where we are in 2023. And mm. what's curious to me as a scholar who has spent my whole career in this space and so this is not the first time we've seen the pendulum swing, right? Um, you know, we have seen since the 1960s, the yep. pendulum swings and it swings and it will continue to. And so to me, yeah, that's the sure. biggest challenge. I think part of the biggest challenge is realizing that that's going to happen because a lot of people thought 2020 was it. You know, we yep. have arrived. Yep. And <laughs> I knew then what is true now <laughs> that we have not arrived, that we hopefully had uh, made progress forward, but I, I was never right. under the impression that we had arrived and we would never be having this conversation that we're having today. However, what I will say this the surprise has been for me is how quickly the pendulum has swung. Like I did not imagine yeah. we would have such fever in 2020 to have such fever in the, the extreme opposite direction just in 2023. In from a historical standpoint, it's usually taken, you know, a decade right. or to see right. at least you know a, a presidential change at least right. to see that swing. Yeah. And so um you know what I'm saying today is you know two kind of trends. I think the the first trend is for the organizations who really weren't committed in the first place, this point in time has been yeah. their exit strategy. It yeah. has been an excuse to get off of the train. It has yeah. been the reason to pull back on those bold statements. Maybe they feel like they had to make in 2020. It has been like, whoo, okay, I'm glad that's over. Yeah. Right? I, I, I feel like a collective sigh of relief in some camps. Yeah. Have, we've seen that, right? And mm -hmm. that has translated into, we no longer have an interest in doing the same type of activities. We don't have the budget. We're not going to um, backfill the role of chief diversity mm -hmm. officer that we just instituted in 2020. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not seeing many organizations explicitly pull back, but those implicit uh, behaviors are very telling. And so yeah. one piece of advice I say, pay attention to what your organization is doing and not doing and ask questions. Because yeah. it's likely not going to show up as uh, a, a complete reversal, but it will show up in what they're not doing in the positions they, again, they don't backfill the resources that all of a sudden have disappeared because of the economy or, or what have you. Right. Um, and so we have to hold our leadership accountable. I think that that is the main thing. The second trend that I am seeing and, and what still encourages me very much is that I'm seeing a lot of organizations that still want to push forward on their journey, but they're just confused. They don't know how to do that with the changing landscape. And so they're working more closely with their legal teams than they ever had before, which I think is a good thing because it's a necessary thing. Like that's where we are. You know, while five years ago, maybe we didn't have to consult with legal with everything we do. Maybe we do now. That's where we are. And so the organizations that have embraced that, embraced those um, strategic partnerships internally, even externally, and understanding that, you know, for much of the work, they can also, they can still move forward. Uh, yeah. At where we are today, again, this changes, you know, the Supreme, the SCOTUS ruling on uh, affirmative action was race-based affirmative action, and it was for institutions of higher learning, and specifically institutions of higher learning that were, you know, government funded. Yeah. Um, and so that's a very specific lane, right? Um, and, you know, I'm happy to share the HBR article Dr. Opie and I wrote on this. Um, at the moment, it does not directly impact uh, corporate efforts. Now, I am very well aware of the 33 states and counting that have, you know, <laughs> legislation out there 
that many of them are around college um, DEI programs, but some of them may lean into corporate. So I'm not saying that there's no impact. I definitely think there will be a downstream impact. Um, so it's something that we should be paying attention to. But if your organization is committed, now is not the moment to say, okay, well, we can't do it anymore. If you want to do it, there are ways that we can continue to move forward in a, a legal and very aware, you know, approach. Absolutely. And I, I think that that needs to be reiterated. So I'm so glad that you brought that up today because there are some who are seeing this as now I'm just, I'm defeated. What's the use, right? And and I think that that mindset is creating fear. It's creating, um, you know, this notion of we can't overcome this. And I believe that if we don't shift our mindsets to think more positively about how we may need to reimagine a little bit differently, then we're going to find ourselves kind of stuck. And so, and I don't, I don't want that. Um, so you talk a lot about um, workplace utopia, and I want to just kind of unpack that for a moment. I know that in, as you are supporting different organizations um, on their DEI journeys, you you bring workplace utopia to the conversations. And so I want you to share with this community what that is and why it's important to internalize the learning behind that concept of workplace utopia. So, you know, when I think about this work specifically, it is hard. Like we know as practitioners, yes. Hands down. allies, it is hard work. So for me, workplace utopia was originally birthed from the sense that, you know, if for me, if, if I don't have something to look forward to, if I don't have hope and optimism, if I can't see a different future, at least in my mind, then I am not able to do this work every day with the same passion and energy that I have. And I find that with like-minded practitioners as well and researchers that like we have to have something some guiding light something that we're working towards right and when i started to think about this concept of workplace utopia it is not about unicorns and butterflies and a perfect workplace and it's not about all the free stuff that the organization can right. give us skills and all that that's great but for me workplace utopia is more so you know what is the work environment that i can thrive that every single person yeah. can thrive? And the workplace utopia is a little different for everyone, which I think is the beauty of it. So we're never going to get to a sense of universal workplace utopia. But for me, it's more about how can we all imagine workplaces of the future, workplaces where each one of us can thrive. And the more that we share those things that can create our own workplace utopia with our leaders, with our managers, with our organizations, I hope the closer that we all move towards that. And so in my book, after every interview, I asked the leader that I was interviewing, you know, what does workplace utopia look like for you in the future? And it's so amazing that every single um, statement was different, but it was beautiful in its own right. And the more that we share those things, whether it's, you know, I thrive in a workplace where I can be my full self, meaning I can be a little goofy sometimes, or I thrive in a workplace that allows me to lean into my quantitative skills because that's what I really like. And I just like to crunch the numbers every day, like whatever that means for you, um, sharing that and building community around that. I think that's how we get closer to, to what we're actually working for in this in this effort. Yeah, and I do think it's really useful for leaders to take some time during those clarity breaks or, or critical reflection moments to think about what do you want the experience to be of, of our colleagues, right, that show up for us every single day. And, and I think that what makes it um, somewhat challenging is that those answers are going to vary from one person to the next. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you create now this what seems like a unicorn of a culture and a workplace environment that really drives towards all these different things that people have a need for? And uh, so I, I would love for you just to talk about how do you navigate questions like that that may come your way, um, because it can feel like is this is this even realistic for us to believe that it, it can exist? So how how can organizations really create that when it's so vastly different from one person to the next? So first you have to listen, right? So if you ask ten different people what their ideal workplace is, you're going to get ten different answers, absolutely. Of course. But if you take a moment to really process what is being said, there are usually some themes that'll come up. You know, I Very want true. a workplace that I can trust. I want a workplace where I feel heard. I want a yeah. workplace that values my unique abilities, right? And so I, I want a workplace that's fun. Like whatever those things are, what I've seen is that they, they usually, you know, funnel into different categories. Um, and if the workplace is listening, there are probably already things that they're doing or can be doing yeah. to 
meet those needs, right? So while we, what fun looks like to one person may be from a different person, what we can do is make sure that we're leaning into our, our social community in this workplace, because that's what we're hearing people want more of, right? The other yeah. thing that I encourage people to do is allow employees and team members to co-create what this workplace of the future looks like. So it's HR's job on the policies and practices, right? But when we talk about culture and how we yeah. do things every day, let us co-create that. So you say you want a workplace where you feel more heard. What does that look like for you? You know, what are some examples of mm -hmm. things that you can do differently or better? Let's get together and co-create this environment. Um, it, it will never be perfect, but we certainly can can move towards, you know, this sense of a feeling where everyone can can thrive and show up as their best selves. Mm, no, I love that. So this is the time where I will let our audience know that we're going to be shifting momentarily and I will um, open it up for questions and comments so that you all can contribute to this conversation if you desire to do so. So if you're part of our Zoom community, you can let me know that you're interested in that by using the raise hand feature. And then I will um, invite you to unmute and I will spotlight you so that you can share. But if you're just here kind of in an observatory capacity, and but you do have some curiosities you're holding, you can go to the chat and you can share your questions that way. And um, I will present them on your behalf. And so I'll give you a chance to kind of percolate on that. I'll go to my next question and then I'll, I'll, I'll look around to see if we have some takers um, on that offering. But I want to talk a little bit now about um, the, you know, again, we mentioned the DEI progress, but I find that there are a lot of organizations that are feeling stuck right now for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because it's the end of year, budgets run out, and they're trying to like really secure budget for the upcoming year. And maybe that's a challenge because people are questioning the, you know, validity of whether or not we need to continue doing this work. I mean, it's all the things, right? And so for those who are feeling stuck in their DEI progress, what are some ways that you suggest just um, they can reinvigorate the dialogue without having to reinvent the will and just feel like um, all of the momentum and traction that they perhaps have, have garnered now is in vain. What do you share with those in folks? You know, I, I ask them to go back to their why um, and not because from a place of why is this important? I, I You probably know why it's important if you're leading this work, right? But yeah. What is your why in terms of what are you actually trying to accomplish, right? Like we we need the metrics, we, we need the numbers, we need the programs, but all of that stems from what we actually are trying to accomplish. And so I think this is a, a great opportunity for organizations. We do something with organizations at Elevate Solutions called DEI Tuna. It's a great opportunity yeah. for tuna, kind of just like we tune up our cars, you know, yeah. every, yes. every, every year, a few times a year. We our strategy DEI strategies also need a tune-up. We have to navigate the changing landscape, but we also have to have an opportunity to circle back and say, okay, what did we accomplish? What do we want to move forward? Like what is our why moving forward? And so I think oftentimes if we're not clear on what we're actually trying to accomplish, it can be hard when we think about one specific program or one specific thing. But right. it shouldn't be about one specific program. It should be about, okay, we are trying to create an environment where people feel a, a higher sense of belonging. We felt like that was a gap previously. That's what we're trying to achieve in the future. Okay, so we are clear on that why. Maybe we can't have that same program next year because it costs $25,000 and we don't have that in the budget. But that does not mean we can't think about ways to increase senses of belonging within this organization, you know? And so for yeah. me, we get caught up on the programs and the structures, which are very important, but when we get caught up on those and don't recenter and think about our why and what exactly we are trying to accomplish and the fact that there are multiple ways to accomplish these things, um, I think that's what, what keeps us stuck, especially in moments like this. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so I am hearing, and I have been for some time, some rumblings around, um, we need to evolve from bias and microaggressions. People are tired of that now. It's like, it's kind of overdone. And um, yeah, maybe in some spaces, um, but here's my question for you. How do we keep bias and inequities um, front and center of the conversation? Because, you know, I know that's where people often start. That's where they plant their seed. And I think people feel like it's kind of overdone, but it, you know, I'm not seeing the change that I believe we have the ability to see. And so I know I'm continuing the conversations. I know that you're continuing the conversations. What do you say to those folks who feel like we need to move on and evolve from that? 
You know, it's interesting that 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 is the conversation, um, because where I like to center is that bias specifically is part of the human condition. Um, yeah. And so I don't look at bias as like a, a DEI conversation per se. Like, yes, it is yeah. on those lines. But when I'm talking to clients, we are just level setting that as humans, we are biased because that is the way our brains yeah. work. And yeah. microaggressions, it's the same conversation. As humans, we have all uh, committed a microaggression, experienced and been on the receiving end of a microaggression and likely have been a bystander of a microaggression. And so for me, I try to uh, level it in terms of like, this is something that we all experience. This is not just for the folks who are DEI proponents. This is not just for the folks who are anti-DEI. This is for everyone. And this helps us to make a better workplace for each of us. And so... When I phrase it like that, I, I find that people are a bit more open to understanding that it will continue to be an evolving journey, especially when you highlight that everyone is biased and everyone right. has had these experiences, everyone, including myself and yourself, have committed microaggressions or made assumptions about people, you know, um, and so having to remind people that I think is is key, but I'd love to know, like, kind of how do you address those questions when when you get them? Yeah, well, in a very similar way. I mean, when we think about some of the, you know, the new language, a relatively new, I should say, that's found its way into the vernacular of the space of DEI, whether it's, you know, allyship and intersectionality and some of these other terms, it really does um, have a lot of connection to, again, you know, bias as a human condition, to use your words. I mean, and so I believe that they're all connected. Um, even when we talk about belonging, I mean, how do we how do we allow people to have a sense of psych safety in the workplace? It's because we are really cognizant of how bias can show up, how we can disrupt it, how we can, you know, um, train ourselves to be much more mindful about, you know, how which we are behaving and things that we're saying. And so I, I think that it's, it's all interconnected and we have to just help people to connect those dots um, in a much more intentional way. Um, and to your point, yeah, it doesn't make us bad people, right? It makes us human. If we have warm blood running through our body, then bias has the propensity to show up. And so it's not something to run from, rather, it's how do we equip ourselves and um, position ourselves to be able to combat it when it does show up. So that harm does not linger, it does not continue. We can restore those relationships, rebuild that trust. Um, because at the end of the day, that's that's really what it's about, you know, the trust and the relationship. So I think it's really critical for us to keep that as part of our, our messaging. Um, okay, so I'm not seeing any hands right now. So I have lots of questions. I'm going to keep going. Um, I was on a panel recently, and this was one of the questions that was presented to me, and I loved it. And so I thought to myself, the next opportunity I get, I'm going to test out this question. What have you been saying, Dr. Ella? What have you been screaming from the mountaintop that you feel like no one is hearing and let's just say for the next, you know, 60 seconds, people are going to hear you. What is that? That's such a good question. So, <laughs> you know, I remember in 2020, I posted about this and I spoke about this. And then at the beginning, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, posted about it, spoke about it. And I feel like it's one of those things that I wish people were listening, specifically around, um, the positions of diversity leaders in organizations. So in 2020, we saw chief diversity officer roles at the beginning of 2020, first quarter, we saw those roles plummet um, in, in a way that was more than we were even seeing in HR roles more generally. So generally, you know, when the economy has a dip, we do see HR roles shrink up in some ways. Um, that's a soapbox for another day, but uh, DEI roles were were the hiring of them slowed even up above and beyond, you know, right. HR roles at the beginning of 2020. Fast forward to the summer of the racial reckoning after the murder of George Floyd and, and the $67 billion of commitment that we got, you know, from all these organizations and DEI roles had tripled from where they were at the start of 2020. And so, okay, again, it's a moment of arrival. I was very scared that we were going to see the same thing in 2023. So I remember at the end of last year, early this year, I said, you know, listen, let's pay attention. Let's not let history repeat itself. We right. know that the economy is challenged. We know that next year will likely be a tough economic uh, place for us in the United States. So let us be mindful of that and not treat our DEI roles as if they are expendable because let us have learned from what happened three years ago. And unfortunately, yes. I, I, if you look at the numbers, we are seeing the same patterns. And so um, 
I think that, you know, making a mistake is one thing, but not learning from those mistakes, letting history repeat itself, right. I feel like that is, you know, the, a, a, a huge challenge. And that really still pains me uh, when I think about it. Cause I'm like, we can't make progress if we keep running into the same pitfalls. Nothing wrong with a pitfall. We all have them, right? Every organization has them, every individual has them. But what is challenging for me is when we keep running into the same pitfalls because we refuse to learn from the historical lessons. I agree. Insanity, but just continuing to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Yeah, that's not that's not getting us there. So I, I'm, I'm certainly with you on that. Um, on a personal note, you have some different endeavors that you are endeared to, and um, a lot of it has to do with like your nonprofit. So I want you to share a little bit about that as well. Absolutely. So our nonprofit arm, Elevate Charity Foundation, we are so excited uh, that we are, are launching in this quarter. Um, and our first effort is around corporate cheat code. So those of you on Instagram, please follow corporate cheat code. Um, it is a, a platform that we are using to kind of distill some myths about the workplace and encourage uh, people from non-dominant identities and how we navigate the, the workplace. So no matter what your background identity is, you know, there is a space for you and many of us in these corporate jobs like you know no one gave us the cheat code and so I'm trying to give it <laughs> to the cheat code yes. people and so um, starting at the beginning of next year we will have monthly free webinars um, that provide some of the skills and professional development that maybe our organizations are not doing because of the changes in budgets or what have you or that that's not where they're focused or maybe it's because you know, you can't afford to attend the fancy conference uh, individually. Yeah. So we want to provide some of those resources to our growing community. And so um, I would say follow Corporate Cheat Code on Instagram and stay tuned for what's to come um, early next year. Yeah, there's something to be said about all of the unspoken rules that it seems like certain populations of people are exposed to sooner and more readily than people who look like you and I, Dr. Ella. And so I love the notion of how how can we bring this this knowledge, this insight, this wisdom um, to to those who are, are not kind of in the insider club, if you will. Um, so cheat code is kind of like a um, I know it's a play on words there, but I, I certainly understand the um, the intent behind behind the language there. Um, you know, what are some of those unspoken rules that sometimes we just don't get exposed to, to the same degree as others that you can just kind of give us a little bit of flavor for what participating and the, the cheat code um, um, community would do for folks? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, negotiating, right? That's one of those things that, you know, you know, and yeah. us every day that, you know, women, for example, and people of color, for example, do not often negotiate um, in the ways that we should not only just salary, but other aspects of our workplace environment. Um, and so, you know, that that's part of what we'll teach is like, okay, here, what are some negotiating skills one on one that we can all practice negotiation is a skill that you have to, you know, develop over time and you yes. don't feel comfortable doing that. And so that's one area. Um, another area is around kind of owning your story, you know, oftentimes, yeah. Um, we allow our environments to kind of tell us who we are instead of really leaning into and, and, and uh, grabbing our own identity, our own stories um, in a way that helps to, for us to present how we want to present in organizations. Yeah. And so kind of just taking, taking the reins there. Um, other areas around, you know, power and influence. And I, I yes. speak to many communities of color, for example, and, and women's organizations. And they say, you know, I, I grew up thinking power was a bad word. You know, I don't want right. to be because people abuse power. And that certainly is yes. the case. But what we have to understand, especially in organizational working environments, is that, you know, you need to have a sense of influence. You need to be able to build your network strategically. That is not a bad thing. That is how mm -hmm. successful you can still do it ethically. Um, and, and it does, that doesn't mean that you abuse your power, but having power is not a bad thing. And and so these are the things that the conversations that we want to have to kind of debunk some of the things that even in our own communities that sometimes we have um, always said or always done. Um, but that doesn't serve us in these workplaces that we're choosing to, um, you know, be part of. Yeah, I love a good reframe and reimagining of, of language. And, and you're right, power is one of those words that's really tricky. But 
uh, I, I think I shared this before on the podcast, but I often hear a good friend of mine say that where it becomes a challenge is when we don't believe that we have power, right? And so if we don't believe that we have power, how can we claim something that's going to help us really, you know, project ourselves in a way that serves us best? And so I, I love the idea of claiming power. Um, so Dr. Ella, you and I have something in common and that um, you're currently on a journey and I have been on the journey where while we both are authors, but you're working on book number two in partnership with uh, Forbes. And I, I, I don't want you to give it all away because I know it's 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 still under lock and key, but um, maybe whatever is feels comfortable to you to share about um, book number two, um, I would love to give you a moment of space to do that. Thank you so much for that. And it's, it, in my journey to alignment and making sure all the things that I'm doing are, you know, pushing towards a certain direction, it is very much centered around the idea of corporate cheat code. So we don't know what the title will be yet, but it yeah, is this yeah. idea of providing the skills and the tools for people like us to navigate these workplace environments that were not made for us, um, but that right. we are find ourselves having to navigate. So um, the book will provide stories. I, I'm still in the very much in a narrative format. Still want to bring real life stories of people um, to the forefront, but also tools and skills, how to build your personal board of directors, you know, how to negotiate that job offer. What happens when you feel like your manager doesn't like you? How do you navigate yeah. that? How do you manage up and across? And how do you use, you know, maybe Chill Downey's uh, influence skills? How do you use that in today's world? And how do you navigate that, you know, based on not feeling like maybe that the organization was made for someone like you? And so um, that is what the work will be centered on. I am excited to be working on it as we speak and I look forward to bringing more about that project as it continues to evolve so thank you so much no thank you for sharing that and um, we will we will definitely make sure that we have to bring you back once um, book number two launches um, so we have maybe just about seven minutes left and I just want you to um, close us out with what have I not asked you about that you're feeling a lot of energy around these days or you're feeling emboldened to have discussions around what's on the horizon for you um, just but share whatever it is that um, you're feeling a lot of energy for right now you know, lately I've been really focused on impact and kind of doing an audit of myself uh, and the work that I am doing. And, and not that all the work that I've done is not impactful in some way, but sometimes I think when we try to do too much, we can lose the focus in the center, right? And that's kind of what we talked about as far as DEI strategy. And I think that, you know, is in alignment with where I am in my career as well. Like, okay, how do I make sure that this next project, you know, has focus and this next project levies the most impact, this nonprofit levies the most impact. Yeah. So that's the kind of thought I would provide for this community that, you know, it is okay to do a personal audit. Uh, when you're feeling like things are not aligned or maybe they could be better aligned, I encourage people to do that. I think that's a conversation that we don't often have, um, especially for you know those of us who maybe have been on a certain career path or trajectory. We think success looks like one particular thing, but I just wanna empower everyone in this community to, you know, it is okay to take a step back, refresh, re-audit, realign with yourself and what you feel like your personal mission is. Um, and for me, it is making sure that the work that I'm doing has the, the, the best and biggest impact for, you know, the gifts that I feel like I've been given. Yeah. And then also kind of aligning yourself with what are some of the other um, endeavors in life and desires that I have and how can I set myself up for success to welcome those things into my life? I know that was kind of a conversation that you and I had as well. And so um, I think that's I think that's great. The whole notion of a personal audit. Um, I am I'm all about making things practical. And so I want to I want to give maybe just a couple tips for what does a personal audit contain and look like? What questions should people be interrogating themselves around? Um, what, are, what are some other resources that helps people to know how to do a personal audit in the most effective way to arrive at some of those clarity points that are, are really instrumental towards really just landing ourselves at a place where we want to be? Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, some things that come to mind uh, for me and just looking over my life in different periods is, you know, paying attention to where there is tension or a stress uh, in your life, right? Um, I remember my therapist years ago said, like, you, you've been just going so fast, you haven't even stopped to pay attention to the things that are stressing you out. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, and it was something that I had to work to unpack. But 
you know, when I'm feeling stressed, okay, let, let's not just move through that moment and move to the next thing. Let me take a step back and say, okay, what's stressing me? Are there things, the areas of improvement? Is this, is it stressing me because it's not aligned with, you know, my morals or not aligned with where I want to be or not aligned with the plan that I put in mm-hmm. place? So awareness and like um, attention, I think is a big thing that we miss when we're just going from meeting to meeting, thing to thing, checklist to checklist. And it's something that I often, you know, have to think about. Um, I'd also say making sure you have appropriate feedback loops. And so this happens at work, but also in your personal life. You know, how are you showing up? How are other people receiving you and perceiving you? And is that how you want them to perceive you? Your family will be, you know, the the quickest telltale. I, I remember a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with my mom and, you know, she was she was needing more attention um, and as in her older years. And, you know, I'm like, I just talked to you two days ago. Like, what's up? Like, why? Like, what's going on? And I had to take a stop, a step back and one be grateful that she is here with us. And, you know, she is in a place that she can ask for more of my attention. Um, But also to say, hey. You know, pay attention to there's a new need here. There's a new way that you're showing up or not showing up. And maybe let's 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 shift that based on what you say is most important to you. Family is most important mm-hmm. to you. You know, maybe that approach worked, you know, five years ago, but now mom's in a different place and you know, she needs different things. And so for me, it's like being willing to adjust and 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 shift and change. Yeah not just being stuck in what we've always done i think it's always easy to go on the status quo that's why change is so hard because even if you don't like the status quo it is really hard to change the status quo even if it's bad right it's just part of the human condition and so for me it's like being willing to unearth and question like is the status quo still working and if not being willing and open to changing that yeah, that is so good. And I, I love that you shared the story about you and your mom. And I think that, you know, as we think about just relationships in general, maybe even relationships in the workplace, sometimes we may get to a point where we get so complacent about what we feel like we know of our colleagues, right? And um, they could be in a season of shift. And when they're in a season of shift, maybe what they need and how they need to be supported can look differently. And so I think we have to always make sure that we remain in this posture of mindfulness and not just taking things for granted and assuming but asking those questions and um, and noticing when maybe behaviors um, are, are showing signs that perhaps the needs are shifting. And so that's so, so good. I have enjoyed this conversation. I am grateful for your time. I know that you're super, super busy, but the fact that you spent this hour with us um, is is really appreciated, Dr. Ella. And um, I want to thank this community for continuing to show up week after week. And if you found that this information was really helpful for you, then I invite you to share it with others. Let them know they can catch the replay or even the podcast when it comes out. Um, Just, you know, actually maybe this afternoon or early next week. Um, But we're grateful that you're here with us. We hope that you will join us again next week. And um, everybody be safe, um, remain healthy, and uh, let's make sure we're taking care of each other. Okay. Thank you all so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Dr. Nisa, for having me.